If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the second chapter of the book of John. (laughs) It's a long time coming. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 of Gospel of John. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour, not, mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith to you, do it. And there were there six water parts of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water parts with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that had been made wine, and knew not whence it was, But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. You have, to, you have to take special note. This is the very first miracle of Jesus that John records. So it's for a purpose. And when I read this even years and years ago, I thought, what a strange first miracle. I don't know if you've had the same thinking. It just it doesn't seem to be as dramatic. In fact, nobody even knew it happened. The miracle happens somewhere between verses 7 and 8. It doesn't even say when it happened. It just happened very quietly. Two people were the only people that even knew what happened. Nobody else even saw it. But this is strong enough that at the very end, it manifested Jesus' glory. And his disciples believed on him. So this is powerful, powerful. If we'll just but have ears and eyes to see and, and believe it. So we have seen that John is writing his gospel in order to systematically lay out evidence that Jesus is God. That is what he's doing. He is laying it out one piece at a time at a time to show that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity, that God himself is Jesus Christ. So verse uh, 31 in the very end of John, John 20, says, These things are written, meaning everything that he wrote in his book, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by be- that believing you might have life through his name. So there, this is an evangel- evangelistic book. This is meant to call very high glory. So this is, this is Christology. This is the study of Christ. This is Christ as God in the highest way. And also this is evangelism that we might believe and that in believing we might have life, that there might be life that we would have that we didn't have in his name. And this miracle 
uh, manifested Jesus' glory. Do you remember from the prologue? John said, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John was standing here when this happened. Now, I don't know when the disciples found out about it. They had to have found out about it because it caused the disciples to believe in Jesus. So whether or not this was whispered at the end, I don't think anybody embarrassed the host at all. I think the party just went on as normal. Uh, just a social embarrassment was, you know, was uh, he did something so that they wouldn't be embarrassed. But somehow, some people found out about it, and the disciples believed Jesus. And John is one of the disciples. So he saw Jesus' glory somehow here, something that represented him. Because you have to see that there are many, many miracles. Jesus did miracles all the time, continuously. But only several of these were chosen. So let me break down the book for you. Um, I didn't do this on the first, the first time when we went to John 1.1. I decided to wait until we got to John 2 before I broke it down. The book really has four parts. You have chapter 1, which is all verbal testimony. Okay? John himself wrote the prologue. That's John's testimony about Jesus. So that's the first 18 verses we took 10 years on. Then we see John the Baptist. He had a testimony. He was the last and greatest of men. No man has, is greater than John the Baptist. The greatest man born of women was John the Baptist, and his testimony with Jesus was the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the, the Messiah. And then we see the first beginning disciples in their very wobbly form. We see Andrew. We see uh, Andrew's Peter, Simon. We see Philip. We see uh, Philip's friend, Nathaniel. And then in the background, we see John the Apostle. Those five men also gave testimony about Jesus. That's all in the first chapter. And the end of the first chapter, Nathaniel gives that absolute amazing uh, confession. Thou, Rabbi, art the Son of God, the King of Israel. So that is what these people say about Jesus. Once you get into chapter 2, okay, from chapter 2 up to about chapter 12, that's the public ministry of Jesus. He is preaching, he's healing. He is talking to people. He's meeting people. He's performing miracles and many, many miracles. That's a daily event for miracles to happen with Jesus. He heals people. He brings people to life that were dead. Just astonishing, uh, impossible things, things that only God could do. And this happens continuously. And he teaches. He teaches. He teaches in parables, riddly kind of dark sayings that some people have ears to hear and other people have no ears to hear at all, that it just hits the top of their head and bounces off, but others have hearts ready and it plants in deep and grows into a huge garden field. So Jesus teaches, he talks, he talks privately. We're going to see in the book of John that he has private interviews, he has public discourses, and he talks to his disciples. He's teaching them. He's dumping on them continuously letting them be with him and, and teaching them. So we see in John that John picks seven miracles. In all of the miracles that Jesus did, John picks seven. And John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs, like a pointing sign, like a road sign, pointing to Jesus' deity. 
These are seven things that he picked out of all of the things. So, for instance, in John in chapter 20, we just read 31. The previous verse said, And many other signs truly did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Many, many things that they saw they couldn't believe. Just miraculous things. And John 21, 25 says, There are also many other things that Jesus did, that the which, if they were written in every one, I suppose, even the world itself, could not contain the books that would be written. So John picks very, very carefully seven things that he saw Jesus do that points directly to Jesus' identity and his mission. And the first thing he chooses is is the wedding at Cana to a very quiet miracle that nobody saw. Nobody even knew. In fact, at the end of the story, the, the maitre d', the head waiter, goes to the bridegroom and brags on the bridegroom for being so awesome that he brought all this wine to the party right at the end, and the bridegroom's just standing there not knowing what's up. Like the bridegroom got, got credit. So this is, the, this is the first thing that he mentioned. And you would imagine, why did Jesus use the deity, use power of the Godhead, in order to, to undo a social embarrassment. Is there nothing bigger? Is there nothing more important? Why? This is not important. This is little. And I'm going to tell you that this is one of the most beautiful parables of who Jesus is and what he came to do in the Bible. It's the number one thing John hits people with. And you cannot underestimate that. That is powerful. But... I know that I've read this and just scratched my head and and didn't understand. So let me tell you what I saw all through high school when I read this, all through my life when I read this, that Mary comes to Jesus and tells him to do something, and Jesus didn't want to do it and does it anyway. I don't know. Have you ever, is that where you were? That Mary comes to Jesus and says to do something, and he said, oh, Mom, I'm not ready to do it. And then she just leaves, like moms leave. And he just goes, <sighs> and does it. That is as far from the truth as is possible. That is absolutely as far from the truth. I will tell you that Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary worship comes from this passage. That Mary, you don't pray to Jesus. Jesus will be your judge. Jesus knows everything you've ever done. That's too scary. You can't go to Jesus. Jesus is king. Jesus is God. What you do is you go to Mary, and he can't deny Mary anything. That's the, that's the concept here. And this is their proof. The proof is that, that, that she comes to Jesus and makes him do something he didn't want to do, such as save Brian's hide. Mary, help Jesus to, to save my hide. As though Jesus doesn't want to, Jesus would rather damn me to hell, but since his mom said, okay, I'll do it. That is, that is dangerous. It is dangerous in 50 different ways because Jesus is God and God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't do something he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do something because somebody related to him, earthly relationship, compelled him to do it. There's something, there's something here for us that I think is a beautiful parable of Jesus himself, all right? So let's, um, 
let's, let's kind of set our scene. Nazareth, you remember, is where Jesus comes from. And the first sermon I ever preached in this church was in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus comes back to his hometown and preaches in the synagogue where he grew up. Well, this happened before that sermon. And Cana is like nowhere. So Cana is like Allendale. No kidding. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing there there. It's just a few families and nothing else. There is, the ruins are still found today. It's the tiniest of settlements. There's just a, maybe a dozen families that live there at all. And it's a few miles from Nazareth. And Nazareth, at the time of Christ, probably had 500 people. So you think of it as just a small town among large towns. 500 people is not a lot. And Jesus grew up among about 500 people. You can imagine everybody related to each other. Everybody knew each other. They had been there for generations. Nobody traveled. Everybody stayed exactly where they were day after day for all of their lives. And Jesus and his mother and his disciples were all invited to this wedding. So you can imagine, you know that, that uh, Philip is from Bethsaida, which is right next door, and Nathaniel is from Cana, which is that town. It was probably somebody in his family. Mary is somehow uh, officiating like a hostess, like a, uh, behind the scenes, the church ladies in the church kitchen kind of thing, okay? All kind of milling around real, real fast, and, and Mary's like seeing to things. So Mary had to be involved somehow. So Mary is just from the next town in Nazareth, grew up, her family grew there for however many generations it was. And they were all invited. Jesus, of course, grew up in Nazareth. So these people knew these people. And a wedding was as big a deal as you got. And a wedding could last a week if you were rich because you would have food and drink, morning and noon and night, plus every imaginable amusement and dancing and music and, and the, you know, whatever, whatever Southern Gospel group was traveling through, they would come in and they had a pony for the kids. And it was a big, big deal for days. And the, so a wedding was, was what the highest thing a village could have. And it was a time where everybody just sat and celebrated. Uh, it was just it, whatever big deals were, it was a big deal. I want to pause and just say it's very significant we're talking about a wedding here. If you're looking at, the, at Jesus, that is who Jesus is. Jesus is calling a bride. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, from the beginning of time to the end of the time, Jesus is calling a bride that will forever be his, not like a king to dominate them, not like a father to smack them and correct them, not like a shepherd to, to, to cajole them and smack them. It is that it's the picture of a lover who invests everything for his bride. So I just want to pause just a minute and just say, it takes a long time to get to your wedding day. It's not like now. It's not like where you can just say, okay, we'll get married, let's find a whatever, whatever. And the biggest delay would be getting the band, whatever. You know, it, it's the biggest of deals. Because what happens is that you have to prove to the world that you can take care of a girl. And so what would happen after a court time, courtship, uh, a man would propose to a lady and she would either reject him or accept him. And if she accepted him, he would go to the father and ask for his, his approval. 
And if given that approval, that next day was a party, usually like a meet the parents dinner, and there was a contract, a covenant, a promise, essentially a wedding with no party. And that was a binding covenant, and they were married. Those people were married. That's why you can say Joseph and his wife Mary. They were, they were betrothed is the word, I think, back in the Middle Ages. They were betrothed to each other, and the only way you could break a betrothal was with a divorce. You had to actually get a divorce, but they had never come together. They had never consummated the marriage. They had never come together, but they were as bound together as they could ever be. Then he would go to work. He had to build a house. He had to acquire part of part of his family land, allowing somebody to say, okay, you can have this part of the family land. Then he had to acquire that from all of his relatives. And then when that was given, he had to build a house himself. And then he had to provide every implement that you would use in a home, every cart rope and every dishpan and everything, everything, everything had to be ready. This isn't, I'm poor, you're poor, let's get hitched. Okay? He had to prove to the world that he could provide. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, when he does that, when he has everything ready, then he prepares a party like no other party that he will ever throw in his life. He, as the bridegroom, pays 100% of the bill. In Israel, there is no dowry. The bridegroom is responsible for everything. You have to be careful. The dowry is a very oriental kind of a concept. Somehow that the, that the man is enriched by his marriage. Jesus is not enriched by marrying us. He enriches us, but he does not become enriched. He provides for his bride. And he does whatever it takes. And then he provides everything for a party that then is not just a party for show my, share my joy, as it absolutely is, but it is also proof to every person in that town, I can provide for this lady. I can. Because everybody's judging him. Don't say, don't judge me. Everybody's judging him. To run out of wine at a wedding is not just embarrassing. It's proof that you had no right to get married, that you are a, a sham and a bum and should never. And the, the insult to the, to the girl's father is worse than the insult to the bridegroom because I am giving you my daughter and now you're proving to the world you can't even pr- plan for a party. Okay, you're poor. It should be a two-day party, not a three-day party. Well, it's only a two-day party because there's no more wine. And Jesus is at the party, sitting. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding. What do you think about at a wedding? I wrote, here's my, here's my, what do you think about at a wedding and a funeral? That's what I wrote in my notes. I think every time I'm at a wedding, when I was unmarried, I thought about what my wedding would be like. Every single time I was ever at a wedding, I was like, hmm, do I like this? Do I like this? What do I want my wedding to be like? And then ever since I've been married, I would say, wow, I'm comparing it to my wedding. I'm comparing to the state of my marriage to that untested marriage that I'm looking at and comparing it in my head. 
And I am telling you the truth. Jesus Christ, God himself, was sitting in the midst of all that joy, sipping at a cup, thinking about his wedding and what he would have to provide for his people. And when his mother came and said they have no wine, he answered her, he answered a different question. Maybe I can put it that way. He answered a question that she didn't ask. She, he made a comment relative to a question that she had no idea what he was talking about. Kind of out of nowhere, just out of the east sky, that he was talking about, what do I have to do with you? What do we have, the Hebrew is, what do we have to do with one another? Okay, what do you have to do with us? What is that to us is the phrase. And when I look that up, what is the other place that I see in the New Testament is Judas comes back to the priests with the money in his hand that he betrayed the Lord with and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he tries to give back the money. And they said, what is that to us? What is that between you and me? And which is exactly word for word what Jesus says to his mother. So I want to say that this is shocking. The only other time you see it in the Gospels is when the demons talk to Jesus. What is that to us? Meaning, what do we have in common? What do you and I have anything to do that you're sending us to our death's doom before our time? We had a bargain. We had a deal. And so I look at this and say, huh, it's not really rude because I don't think Jesus was ever rude. But this is not intimate. Look what he says. This is in verse 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, I don't see that there's anything wrong with Mary telling Jesus something because I assume by this time Joseph is gone. He's dead. You saw him last when Jesus was 12. So 18 years have passed. Jesus is now 30. And Joseph is, is gone. And Mary's a widow. And Jesus is her oldest son. I think she would have come to him with everything. Anytime there was an issue, anytime there was a problem, and she just came to him and he took care of it. And so she comes to him and he treats her rudely. And the NIV, if you have an NIV, it tries to make it a little bit easier. It says, dear woman, as though somehow that makes it kind. Um, I think one kind of a goofy English translation says, ma'am, <laughs> as though somehow you're trying to be nice. Like it's not insulting, but you have to feel what Jesus is saying. Jesus is separating himself from his mother without any doubt. What do you, what do I have to do with thee? Mine, I, mine hour is not yet come. Where did that come from? That seems like so out of place. When you talk about Jesus' hour, what you're doing is you're talking about his, the hour of his death. There's three or four passages in the gospel that the hour is come. He walked right pat through the crowd that they were trying to stone him for his hour had not yet come. And Jesus in the garden is sweating blood droplets onto the pebbles and he said shall I ask you to remove me from this hour it was for this reason for this hour that I would that I came here this was the hour that I came that you might be glorified so Jesus's hour was his death and I think as he was as he was swirling the wine around in that cup he was looking 
at what he would have to provide for his bride. And, and his mother just simply comes and says, they have no wine, which is a predicament. And he immediately stiff arms her. He doesn't say mom. He doesn't say mother. He, there's no intimacy. He calls her woman and then says, what do we have to do with each other? Mine hour has not come. Like, there's no reason. And he's not talking the hour of my miracles. He's talking about the hour of his death. So interesting, she simply then speaks to the servants. I think mothers know. She, they know what, what hill to die on. She, she, just asks, she just tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do exactly what he says. So there is faith exempted here. In this miracle that's private, no one sees it. There is faith here. But it is, this is way different. This is not simply that there is no wine. Jesus is using this event to tell a story about everything about him, everything about Christianity, everything about who he is and why he's here. He's going to use this event to show it. Okay? Um, let me mention Mary just one time before I pass, because I don't want to be... I don't want to ever be rude or crass, but this is the way the Bible says it. Jesus is, is distancing himself from his mother, and I disagree with Roman Catholic theology here. Mary has no more influence over Jesus than you do. Mary is a person like you do that needed salvation like you do. There is no special in uh, track for the family. And I say hallelujah, hallelujah. Because what if your father was a, was a monster? What if you're not from, the, from godly stock? What if you have failures in your life that you're passing on to your children? Are you hoping that you, through your good Christian walk, will make your children good Christians? It doesn't work that way. God treats each person as a person that he came to die for, and he treats you as a woman or as a man, not as the brother. Because we see, we see that, what was it? He, I wrote it down. They came, we read, I, this is from Luke, we read the other one. Uh, they came to his, uh, they said, your mother and brothers are out here to see you. And he said, who are you, who are my, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Now remember, these are the same Brethren who thought he was crazy. Do you recall that? Same ones who thought he was kind of nuts. He's kind of a religious fanatic. We've got to take care of him. Maybe we'll take him back home and he'll have a little vacation. This is, this is what we're doing. And he said, no, my mother and my brothers are here. The ones who do the will of God, that's the relationship that I want. It's not through family ties. It's not through your pedigree. It's not who you were related to. It's not, you trace my family tree, you're going to have preachers and horse thieves. I mean, that's just the way it works. And I, I would bet you have the same family as I do, okay? For every one preacher, you're going to have nine horse thieves. So, so God treats you individually. And, and I think that is a great lesson buried here in this little parable. As Mary comes to him but doesn't influence him, he does, and he's, he's not doing something he doesn't want to do. He is going to use this to show his glory. Did you see John use the word glory in verse 11? This shows his glory 
What is the glory of Christ? It is something so shining that it shows that there is no other possibility than this is God Almighty. If you were to teach this to the four-year-olds, if I were to teach this lesson, which I'm sure this lesson is in your curriculum, I'm positive it is, I would say Jesus has the ability to rule nature. And that is so true. There's, no, there's nothing untrue about that at all. I would say that that is a lesson that you're not, you're not adding to the Bible by saying that. He took water and turned it into wine. He has power over nature. And, and the children at the level of their understanding would say, that's amazing that he would be able to control nature. Because even at their ability, they know what nature is. They know that it's, that it's up and down and backwards. So, but I think there's way more here than just Jesus controlling nature. So let's, let's look at it. My hour is not yet come. So let's go on and see what he does. See what is the miracle, or at least we'll read the verses around the miracle. I think the miracle's in between the verses. So this is verse 6. We're in, still in chapter 2. They were set there six water, part, six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins. That's about 20 or 30 gallons each, okay? And Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim, all right? Now, these aren't water jars. These are tubs meant to clean yourself in. Anytime that you wanted to approach God as a, as a believing Jew, you cleaned yourself. You washed yourself before you worshipped. You washed your clothes before you worshipped. You washed everything that was used in your worship. Every part of it was washed. And it was symbolic. It was, it was, a, um, it was a ceremony. It wasn't that anybody thought that you were clean enough to come to God because you put some water on yourself. You don't take a bath to come to God. But it's that idea that you had, to be, you had to know that God is clean. And what does that mean? I need to clean myself to get there. So the servants were the only ones that knew what was going on. Jesus said, do you see the bathtubs right here? I want you to fill them to the brim with water. And the servants kind of looked at each other and went, okay. And they fill it with water. And then instantly... He doesn't, even, he doesn't even put his hands above it. He doesn't do anything. He's not magic. God's not magic. There's no, there's, no, there's no thing that happened. He simply said, now draw out and give it to the maitre d', give it to the head waiter uh, in charge of the wedding. And they draw it out and they take it to them. So I just have to say, that is as significant as it could possibly be. These were jars of water for cleaning yourself so that you could be right with God. And he turned it to wine. He turned water into wine, not necessarily because he has control over nature, because he didn't, you can't turn water into wine. It's not like that if you just give in long enough, water becomes wine. It doesn't. It's not like he sped up something. He didn't multiply something that was already there. He, he created it. Now, one of, my, uh, one of my heroes that I, I try to read, he's really too smart for me, but I, 
but I like, he's a Greek scholar that also is just real simple when he writes, and I like it both, because I need what he, I need what he knows, but I need to explain it in, in an easy way, because I can't, can't understand it when it's too complicated, but he's just so simple how he explains it, but he's, he's sharp as a razor blade. He said, guess what I saw? When I look at chapter one, going into chapter two, I see seven days. And when you see John the Baptist speak, and then the next day, and then the next day, Andrew, and then the next day, bring Simon, and then the next day, and then the next day, and then three days later, that's what it says here, three on the third day. And he said, he said, there's no way John was not talking about Genesis here. He starts it off, in the beginning was the word. Anybody with a brain is going to say, oh, that's just like Genesis. That's how Genesis starts. He's taking you all the way back to pre-creation. And what he's saying here is that Jesus can transform something. He recreates. You have seven days of creation. Jesus is going to recreate in seven days. That, there's, that he, is, he is the creator that then takes and recreates and makes something new that was never there. Something that you can't imagine. Something that is a new creation. Old things are gone, and new thing, behold, new things are here. So he, ta- he looks at these ceremonial jars for washing, and he turns it to blood. Can you see that I'm not really stretching it? When you raise the glass of grape juice, what are we saying? The words of Jesus, this is the New Testament in my blood. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. The, the wine is his blood. The wine is his blood. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I just I picked this from Paul's writing. The cup of blessing, that which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, Paul is scolding some Corinthians who are doing wonky but basically is saying, we raise the juice, and it's the blood of Christ that we're celebrating. And he takes this water that's intended to clean you and make you presentable from God, and how will he do it? How will he provide for his bride? How will we be able to wear white, pure and clean, which is the righteousness of the saints, is what we read today. How can that be? He needed to provide his blood. That's what he said Woman, what if I have to do with you? My hour isn't yet come. I can't give them wine yet. He was talking about a different wedding, a different wedding, and he was the bridegroom making all the provisions. Not the, not the dork bridegroom that he was at the wedding of. I don't know. Have you ever been a dork bridegroom? And you're like, my job is to provide. And then you just kind of giggle in your throat. and You go, yeah, right. How am I going to provide? You know? I told Melissa that she could quit one of her night jobs when the baby came. It's a quote from a movie. I go back to Exodus. This is from chapter 7 in Exodus. Thus saith the Lord, this shall you know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that which is in my hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. As a curse, God turned water into blood. And Jesus did the very same thing as a blessing. The very same thing. He turned water into wine that represented his blood 
as a blessing of what he was, that he is God Almighty, the, the, the groom, the bridegroom, that in all ways making provision. Ephesians 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews 9, and almost all things by the law are purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. 1 Peter 1, for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and spot. He changed the water into wine as a picture of who he is. He provides for his bride by the blood that will clean them from their sins and allow them to be where he is. He's making all the provision. He's bearing all the cost. We are the beneficiary that comes to live with him. And so he tells the servants, draw it out now and bear it into the governor of the feast, and they bear it. Do you see? Jesus is the governor of the feast. <laughs> he is the governor. He's the Lord of the feast. He has, he has more planned for us than we think. Do you think it's all about lists of things that you can't do and lists of things you must do? To enjoy, to truly enjoy is to enjoy what God is for you because that's how you were built. You were built to love Jesus. That's why you were made. Everything else is an idol. Everything else is a, is a trick. Everything else is, a, is, is rolls of duct tape tying you into a ball that you can't escape from. But to enjoy Jesus is joy. And I, I ask myself, that's Brian. Do you enjoy Jesus? Is there joy in your heart? Is there any evidence of joy in your life? Or is it dead? Is it, is it water? Is it water of ceremonial cleaning? Is that the best I can do? Or do I have the joy of the wine of the Lord? The wine that, that Jonathan read was pressed out in the lees, pressed out and overflowing to all of us. Verse 9, the ruler of the feast tasted the water that made wine and knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water out knew, and the governor called for the bridegroom and said, Every man doth forth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. There was a time, the fullness of time, Jesus was born under the law, that he might abolish the law for us, that he lived the way we were expected to live, that in him we are righteous before God. You have kept the good wine until now. You've kept the good wine until now. That, that, is, that is so deep. That is deeper than deep because what you're really saying is you can approach God through cleaning, keeping your nose clean. You can approach God through Ten Commandments that you think somehow you're keeping you can approach God in the, all those ways. Oh, you've kept the best wine till now because I please God better than Adam ever did. Me. You. You please God more than Adam in his innocency ever pleased God. If you have Jesus as your Savior, 
kept the best wine until now. Do you see, Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. And the bridegroom, got, the bridegroom who was the idiot, who, who blew it, got credit for what Jesus did. And nobody knew. But John wrote, this is the beginning of miracles, which Jesus of Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed on him. The gospel, when it's, when it's pi- pictured, the gospel when it's read, the gospel when it's preached, the gospel when it's shared, the gospel when it's ruminated on, the gospel when it's meditated on, the gospel when it's remembered from long ago, creates faith. And that faith is glory to Jesus Christ. As we herald him now, as we call him now who he actually is, we bring him glory. And that glory will dazzle us for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads and our hearts to you and call you magnificent, call you uh, generous and kind, call you all-providing bridegroom, that we love to see your face, that you would look upon us when we stand at our wedding and you will be delighted and ravished with our love is unbelievable to us. It is only by faith that we accept that. We love you because you're truly altogether lovely. And we ask that our lives would be appropriate in your sight and that you would see fit to strengthen us and grow us. I, I just pray for uh, the wedding yet to come, the wedding that makes all marriages ring. I, and I just, I just ask that you would, that you would give us a, just a panting thirst for that, like wine, and that we would enjoy, give us the joy of our salvation, like David prayed. And we just want to say that we adore you in Jesus' name. Amen.